That's the sound of a Boeing B-52 Stratofortress, a U.S. military plane that's been around since the 1950s. It's big, though not the biggest plane you'll ever see in the sky, but it might be the ugliest. The fuselage is long and wide, the massive wings carry eight engines paired in four sets of two. Its nickname is Buff, that's B-U-F-F, for big, ugly, fat, and a fourth, shall we say, more creative word that starts with an F. Like a lot of other aircraft models, the Buff has seen its fair share of technical mishaps. In 1961, for example, one of these behemoths was flying near Goldsboro, North Carolina, a city about 50 miles southeast of Raleigh, when a fuel leak led to a series of unfortunate events that ultimately brought the aircraft spinning uncontrollably to the ground. Before impact, the entire thing broke apart. A plane crash is scary on its own, but this particular plane was carrying the stuff of nightmares. Two thermonuclear bombs, each hundreds of times more powerful than the ones used on Japan. But not to worry. You see, each bomb had numerous safety mechanisms, and they all had to be triggered for the nuclear explosives to actually detonate. Yet, for one of these bombs, something didn't go quite right. Many of the safety mechanisms weren't working as planned, and the bomb? It started arming itself. According to a declassified government document, quote, one simple low-voltage switch stood between the United States and a major catastrophe. That same document also had some notes on it that are, well, pretty damn casual. Like this one, quote, "'Twas an accident, not an incident," end quote. Oh, and then there's this, quote, yeah, it would have been bad news. In spades. This is Nukes of Hazard, a podcast from the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation in Washington, D.C. I'm James McKeon, a policy analyst here at the Center. Every two weeks, we'll be reflecting on a piece of WMD history and then explaining some of the nuclear news that we think you should know. So let's get right into it. Easily the biggest nuclear story this past week has been the increasing tensions on the Korean Peninsula. And with me to discuss the situation is the center's Herbert Scoville Jr. Peace Fellow, Bernadette Stadler. So Bernadette, I think it's important before we get into any details that we just take a quick step back. Why is North Korea even important right now? Thanks, James. So North Korea is not the type of country that you would expect to be plastered all over our news and keeping policymakers awake at night. It's a country about the size of Pennsylvania, and it's located almost 5,500 miles away from the west coast of the United States. The only problem is that it has an estimated 10 to 16 nuclear weapons, and a leader who seems intent on putting one of these weapons on a missile that could strike the U.S. Right, so that's clearly a big problem, but why has North Korea been in the news so often lately? It's not like this situation has developed overnight, right? No, you're right. This is a situation that goes way back, particularly since 2006, when North Korea tested its first nuclear device. Uh, Since then, North Korea has tested four devices, and it was widely expected that they would test one more last weekend in honor of the birthday of Kim Il-sung, the founder of North Korea. Not a lot of people were excited about this. Uh, Even China, which has long been reluctant to pressure North Korea, warned it not to test. The Trump administration bragged that a U.S. aircraft carrier had been sent to the Korean Peninsula, in, Korean Peninsula in anticipation of this test. 
However, this show of force ended up to be not so impressive when it was revealed that the ship was actually sailing towards the Indian Ocean for planned exercises with Australia. Regardless of where the ship was and actually going, it looks like North Korea believed that it was nearby. They condemned the ship's presence in the region as, and I quote, reckless aggression. So what ended up happening with all of this? Well, it wasn't as explosive as anticipated. North Korea did not test a nuclear device. They did show off their power in a well-publicized military parade that included what could be a new intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM. This is the missile that in theory could reach the U.S. North Korea hasn't tested an ICBM yet, but they've been known to test missiles soon after displaying them in parades. The day after this military parade, North Korea did try to test a missile, but it exploded almost immediately. This might be seen as a victory for the U.S., but experts warn that North Korea learns from every test that they conduct, even the ones that fail. So I think what we need to draw as a conclusion from all of this is that despite all of our sanctions, despite our military threats, North Korea has continued to advance its nuclear and missile programs. And this means that time just isn't on our side. At the center, we have long advocated for a diplomatic solution to the problem on the Korean Peninsula. But unfortunately, that is the only option that the Trump administration has taken off the table. We really think that they should reconsider. Thanks, Bernadette. Let's check in on another non-proliferation hotspot, and that's Iran. Earlier this week, President Trump's administration discreetly acknowledged that the Iran nuclear deal was, well, working. Greg Tarrin, a fellow policy analyst here at the center, is here to dive into this. Greg, let's start with the basics. What's the Iran deal, and why should Americans even care about it? Yeah, so the, the Iran deal is the international agreement between the United States, its negotiating partners, and Iran to place Iran's nuclear program under vigilant lock and key. It, the point is to restrict them from obtaining a nuclear weapon. It entered into effect in January of last year after it was verified by international inspectors that Iran has been complying with its many commitments. In return for accepting strict constraints and allowing inspectors unprecedented access, the United States, European Union, and the United Nations waived sanctions directed at Iran for its nuclear activity. But it's worth noting, because a lot of people get this wrong, the United States is still maintaining sanctions on Iran for its human rights violations, sponsorships of terrorism, and other nefarious activities. Yeah, and I'm actually going to repeat that because it's an extremely important point that's often missed. The United States is still maintaining sanctions on Iran for human rights violations, sponsorship of terrorism, and other nefarious activities. But moving on to today, you know, what's happening with the deal right now? Well, you won't be surprised to hear, but we've been receiving some mixed messages from the Trump administration on the agreement. On the one hand, President Trump said this recently. As far as Iran is concerned, they are not living up to the spirit of the agreement. I can tell you that. And we're analyzing it very, very carefully, and we'll have something to say about it in the not-too-distant future. But Iran has not lived up to the spirit of the agreement. On the other hand, Secretary Tillerson provided a letter to Congress in which he calls out Iran for its nefarious activities, but also acknowledged that Iran is in compliance with the agreement. The Trump administration is currently undergoing a review of the agreement and looking for additional ways to pressure Iran, but there's a strong chorus of national security experts in the United States and resounding support from the international community that all parties should continue to implement the deal. So what would happen if President Trump withdrew the United States from the agreement? I mean, he used to repeatedly say he would do this on the campaign trail. Yeah, so this would be a lose-lose for the United States and a win-win for Iran. Uh, it's important to remember it's not just an agreement between the United States and Iran. Uh, China, Russia, Britain, France, Germany, the European Union, they're all parties to the agreement as well. 
And those partners have indicated they are not going to renegotiate the agreement. So let's assume renegotiating is off the table. Even Trump's cabinet members have said the deal's here, let's enforce it. Uh, if the U.S. backs out, international sanctions will be weakened. Uh, we can't do it on Iran. The U.S. can only do so much. Meanwhile, Iran would be less likely to allow inspectors to continue monitoring. We would lose unprecedented access, and there would be few diplomatic options for stopping Iran. It would be one of the greatest unforced errors in foreign policy history for the United States. So, sort of like the Bill Buckner of diplomacy, maybe? <laughs> no, no comments. <laughs> gotcha. Thanks, Greg. Yeah. That buff... The big, ugly, fat, you get the picture. The plane that crashed and almost, you know, took out North Carolina? That actually wasn't an isolated incident. The 1960s saw two other notable B-52 crashes, both involving nuclear weapons, one over Greenland and the other over Spain. Thankfully, no nuclear weapons detonated either time, but in both cases, a nuclear bomb was lost to the ocean or ice, and they've never been seen again. You might be asking yourself, how could there have been so many accidents involving nukes and planes? It's largely because during the Cold War, the United States kept airplanes with nuclear weapons on 24-hour alert, with some in the air at all times, ready to fly toward the Soviet Union and strike if ordered. Today, things are a little different, but not quite as different as you might think or hope. Sure, we don't have nuclear-armed airplanes flying around all the time, but we still have some nuclear weapons on high alert, ready to be launched at a moment's notice. The weapons I'm talking about are, are more than 400 nuclear intercontinental ballistic missiles, or as they are known in the nuke world, ICBMs. ICBMs are fast, like really freaking fast. At their peak, 17,000 miles per hour fast, so more than 20 times faster than the speed of sound. If launched from their silos in the Midwest, they could reach Moscow or Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea, in about 30 minutes. Yeah. 30 minutes. And if our satellites and radars detect that nuclear weapons are in the air, headed toward the United States, ICBMs on alert can be launched before the incoming missiles even strike. So the theory is, the high alert status keeps us safer. No adversary would dare strike us, because they would have a missile coming back their way almost immediately. But what if the satellites and radars are wrong? What if it's a false alarm? This has actually happened on numerous occasions. Zbigniew Brzezinski was President Jimmy Carter's national security advisor. You may know him better as an occasional guest on MSNBC's Morning Joe. Co-host Micah Brzezinski is actually his daughter. In 1979, Mr. Brzezinski received what you might describe as the worst prank phone call in human history. Well, it wasn't technically a prank, but just bear with me. On the other line was a military assistant who delivered this sobering news. Sorry to wake you up, we're under nuclear attack. The assistant told him that some 200 Soviet nuclear weapons had just been fired, and they were headed toward the United States. Brzezinski asked for a confirmation and then hung up the phone. But when he got the call back, the aide told him that we're not under attack from 200 nuclear weapons, we're under attack from about 2,000. With little time, Brzezinski hung up the phone and thought about his next moves. Mainly, I need to tell the president. But before he could do anything, the aide was called again. It was actually a false alarm, caused by a training tape that was accidentally played in the computer system. <laughs> but what if the call hadn't come in time? 
What if it took five or ten minutes until they realized it wasn't real? What would Brzezinski have done, thinking that the attack was real? What would he have recommended to President Carter? Here are Brzezinski's own words about the incident during an interview in 2012. I certainly would have favored a commensurate response with maybe a bit of an add-on as an inducement for restraint. And um, if the confirmation had been a little late, could we have had a problem? <laughs> we might have had. At the center, we're often asked, why should anyone care about nuclear weapons? After all, the Cold War ended almost 30 years ago. Even the name of our podcast, Nukes of Hazard, a play on the title of the show Dukes of Hazard, is, admittedly, a little dated. But here's the thing. Leaders, hairstyles, and TV shows featuring cars named after Civil War generals, they've come and gone, but nuclear weapons have been a constant. There are still over 15,000 nuclear weapons in the world, and over 90% of those weapons are controlled by the United States and Russia. Seven other countries have nuclear weapons, and all nine are sustaining, modernizing, or expanding their arsenals. And of course, I don't need to tell you that North Korea is barreling ahead in a single-minded nuclear pursuit with global reach. Add all of that to the threat of terrorists trying to acquire nuclear weapons or materials, and you can see why this problem hasn't really gone away. At the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation, we're looking for solutions to the threats posed by nuclear and other weapons of mass destruction. Understanding how we got here is the first step to reducing those threats. So spread the word. We don't pretend to have all of the answers, and we're going to need the help of everyone we can get to solve these challenges once and for all. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, shoot us an email at podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at nukes underscore of underscore hazard. You can also like our Facebook page, www.facebook.com slash armscontrolcenter. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you soon.